Buongiorno or buonasera. Welcome to Kimberly's Italy. My name is Kimberly Holcomb, and I am here with the uh, world famous Tommaso, my, <laughs> my co host, co- podcast producer, and cohort in life. Ciao, Tommaso. Ciao, Belladonna. Come stai? Bene, bene. So sweet, he calls me Belladonna every time. And tonight I'm so not Belladonna. <laughs> <laughs> it is really, really hot. It's a Sunday night. And it's so hot here in little Rhode Island. So I'm sweaty. And um, it's. You just, you just came back from a long bike ride. I did a bike ride. And. Um, but it's air conditioned in here. We are air conditioned, but I don't care. I'm not Bella tonight. And it's so hot that we are having. We can't drink wine, it's too hot. So we're having an Aperol Spritz mm. in honor of a Sunday night podcast recording. Okay? Chin okay. chin. Chin chin. Let me just take a. Big, huge gulp. Take a belt. <laughs> oh, yum. Delicious. So, welcome to our 12th episode. A dozen. A dozen. A dozen. And this episode is on a road trip from Firenze, Florence, down to San Gimignano and back up. Our last two episodes were on Firenze, Florence. And... Uh, this road trip is from our trip there, uh, Tommaso's first trip to Florence several years ago. And while we still had a hotel in Florence, we decided to take a road trip. So we rented a car and we we upped our game. <laughs> we didn't rent a Punto this time. We did not have a Fiat Punto like every other trip of our Italian life together. No, no. We've had other cars. Well... All the funny stories involve a Punto. No, the one you cracked up and like come and scraped oh, yeah, all over the place. Oh, yeah, that was a lancha. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. And then the one that we'll tell about Venice later. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> maybe in general, it's just about rental cars. That was not a Punto in Venice. Moral of the story is don't go anywhere with me in a rental car. I'm just kidding. So we upped our game, as I said, and we rented a... Uh, an Alfa Romeo in Firenze for the day because I wanted to take Tom down to San Gimignano. It He had never been, and I had been several times, and it was late fall, so it was perfect time to go because San Gimignano is stunning. It's a beautiful, small, car-free medieval village, only like an hour south of uh, Firenze, and it is popular for a reason because it's so incredibly beautiful. But that popularity brings tourists. And in the high season, it is like... It's it's just not pleasant. No, it's actually, the word you used earlier was it's mobbed in the (laughs) summer season. So if you can avoid going there in the high tourist season, please do. We were there late, late fall, and it was perfect. So we rented this Alfa Romeo, drove down, wasn't that long, drove down to San Gimignano. And when you get there... It's about 20, 25 miles. That's it. But, oh, I forgot to say, we take back roads. Yes. Because... Well, there's no real highway between the two. There is. There is. But you don't know that because we didn't take it. Oh. I don't like the uh, autostrada unless you're going far, 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 because it's like being on a highway here in America. You see, well, the huge difference is... Their rest stops 
have awesome food. They have great food. They have delicious. <laughs> it's panini. almost worth it to take right? the autostrada. <laughs> Okay, good point. Next time we will. It's not like, you know, if you've gone down you know, Mass Pike or something or 95 and seen Sparrow, uh, forget it. Oh, Sparrow pizza. That's upscale compared to, uh, you know, I, I know like McDonald's or, or Mickey Donuts D's, or something. No, it is. You walk in there and it's prosciutto and. Well, in panini. In panini. And delicious coffee. Yeah. And yeah. So, okay. But this trip, we did not take the autostrada because no. I love taking back roads. And do you remember what we saw, like not even that far outside of Firenze? Those trees. Oh, oh, yes. The silver, the silver poplars. I thought they were birch, but they were silver, silver. poplars. Lined up, lined up like Planted. rows and rows and rows and rows and rows. Like some acres and acres like a basically the measurement Nazi get out there and <laughs> plotted this thing to, to, to millimeter precision. But we stopped, you were driving and we stopped so I could go back and take pictures. I got yeah. out of the car and did every angle and from straight on or to the right, to the left, it was precision planted. Precision planting. It was, it was beautiful, incredible. And they went so far that the perspective like blended together. It was, it was stunning. Mm -hmm. So that's a benefit mm -hmm. to take back roads for not, sure. Not to mention you've got all the other Tuscan yes, landscapes, exactly. Cyprus and everywhere else. Like you're looking at, you know, you're basically driving through the, um, the uh, brochure. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good example. Anyway. So we take the back roads past these beautiful, incredible poplar trees Saw the landscape as, and the closer you get to San Gimignano, the more Tuscan the landscape gets with the cypress trees and the, you know, winding driveways, etc. Anyway, so when you get to San Gimignano, as I mentioned, it's car free. It has been for ever, you know, I don't know how long, but they were wise enough to say this is a car free zone. So you have to park outside the little village and there's all these parkejo. That means a parking lot, which is easy to see. It has the same like big P sign that we have in America. So you park your car there and then you walk up into this teeny medieval village. And San Gimignano became independent as a village in 1199. And the reason it's so important architecturally is a UNESCO heritage site. Mm -hmm. The reason it's so important is that at one time in the medieval ages, there were 72 towers in this teeny footprint. Why? Because different noble families or successful merchants, whomever all lived there, competed with each other. And they were there building these towers to, to show off their wealth. And the thing is, in those days... 1100, 1200. I mean, imagine how difficult that was to build a tower, 50 to 70 meters tall. So imagine how difficult and expensive it was to build these towers. And they competed with each other and they were trying to prove that, you know, they're the epitome of wealth and success was how tall your tower was. So this teeny footprint for all of the, you that have been there, it's small. I mean, you can walk it in. It's a 
half a kilometer, a kilometer? No, it's, it's, it's very Teeny. small. Yeah. So at one point there were 72 of these towers. Now there's only 14 left. But the interesting thing about the 14 towers that still remain and the 72 that were there is that it's one room per floor. And so I'm not sure what the ground floor is, but the second, third, fourth floors were bedrooms. And then the top floor was a kitchen, always the kitchen, because they were wise enough to think if they had a kitchen fire, then they'd all have time to get out because they were below and it's stone. But the thing is, these towers were two meters, basic or the average, two meter thick walls of stone and not every room had a window or a bathroom <laughs> none of so, them had a bathroom so it's like ew, in the mid- one, one in the morning <laughs> well the thing is the reason there were no or minimal windows is because it kept the ha- the house the tower right. cooler in the summer right and warmer in the winter right. but imagine how dark and so then you'd only have candles or whatever. candles that's all they had, obviously, in the medieval ages. Right. But here's a good one. I remember this from the little museum there. There's one tower that you can enter still. It's called Torre Grossa, which means the largest one. And that tops off at 54 meters, and you can climb up it 200 and some odd steps to the top. But in the little you know tour that I took there or whatever I read, one of the towers that no longer is standing, the people, not only did they compete with each other for to show off wealth and, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, but some of them became defensive about other people trying to break in or, you know, they were worried about, you know, defending their tower. So one tower in the medieval ages did not have an entrance on the ground floor. Their entrance was on the second floor and they had this very long wooden ladder and you climbed up that ladder to get into the tower. And then at night when they went to bed, they hoisted the ladder up and affixed it to the entrance. So imagine, imagine that. What if you did have to, I guess you just went to the bathroom in a pot because who's going to. Or one of those little windows. Anyway, isn't that awesome? And then I started thinking about, well, how did they get food and groceries up and oh, supplies? Carrying the groceries. No, they must have had a a, uh, yeah. a system, like a bucket that you drop on sure. a line and yeah. all that kind of yeah. stuff. And then I started thinking on my bike ride earlier, I was thinking, oh my God, what if they had an emergency? What if, you know, a woman was having a baby? And I thought, oh, everyone had a baby where they lived. So right. that wasn't a problem. Right. But Anyway, it couldn't have been an easy life, for sure. Well, obviously it wasn't that hard because the very wealthy people built them. So they had some way, servants or something, they weren't really taxing themselves. (laughs) Well, they were to climb up the 200. Oh, well, maybe they got got carried. (laughs) Giorgio, come here. Anyway, now when you go to San Gimignano, there's only 14 left, but... As I mentioned, you can go on one, Torre Grossa, and the rest of them are owned by private families. And the nickname that someone, I'm not sure if it was an Italian or an American, but someone gave 
San Gimignano, the nickname of Manhattan of the Middle Ages, which I find funny, but some Italians don't really like that. I wouldn't like that. Okay. If I would. But think I'm of how- I'm Italian and I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> What's your reasoning? Well, because it's so, they're so elegant and there's a lot in Manhattan that isn't elegant. Okay. Fine. <laughs> so moving on. Moving on. Moving on. When you start walking through the teeny little village, lots of little stores that sell typical Tuscan wares and a lot of cheese shops. And um, that area is famous for Pecorino. And I think especially in San Gimignano, it is the best Pecorino I've ever had. And I know that it's not your favorite, Tommaso. It'll do in a pinch. Okay. I love it. And and what they do in San Gimignano is you can walk into the cheese shop and just say, can I have a little wedge? And you pay, you know, a euro, two euro, if that. They how, like, how, how would you say that in Italian? Posso avere un pezzo piccolo, per favore, da pecorino. <laughs> That's how. It sounds good. <laughs> it sounds better when you ask for it like that. <laughs> True. Instead of, can I have a wedge? Can I have a little chunk? Oh, wait, Tom's having a sip of his Aperol Spritz. I'm going to, too. Hold on. I'm still sweating. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So good right now. Mm. Anyway, so you can get a little pezzo piccolo di pecorino Mm -hmm. and walk around with it. You just walk around the little village eating this little nutty deliciousness of cheese. Oh, I love it. As I mentioned, San Gimignano is so popular, so crowded. So here's a good suggestion that we did not do on this particular trip with Tommaso, but I have stayed. If you had to go in a popular season, I would suggest going super, super early in the morning or better yet, go late in the afternoon have already booked a hotel. There's several very nice, small, local, authentic places to stay and several really, really delicious restaurants. And if you stay overnight, then all the tourists are gone. So all of a sudden you have this medieval village to yourself. And it's like when you walk around there at night, The towers are lit a little bit. They don't overdo lighting at all in Italy in general, but uh, exterior lighting, interior lighting, they do pretty poorly sometimes in restaurants. (laughs) Really bad. Food is so good and sometimes the atmosphere is so bad. Exactly. It's way too bright. But anyway, exterior wise, their lighting is minimal. So if you spent the night in San Gimignano and all the day trippers are gone, you walk around there and If you just ignore the uh, tourist shop signs or the restaurant signs, literally, it's as if you're in the Middle Ages. It's like that cheesy phrase. It's like time stood still. Mm -hmm. It's really true. So that's what I recommend if you have to go in high season. And if you're in off season, do that as well. We didn't do it. I have, as I mentioned, have done it myself before. But Tommaso only saw it during the day. But we had a Good day, didn't we, Tom? It was a wonderful, wonderful day. And an amazing lunch. So here's the other recommendation in San Gimignano or anywhere you go. Normally, the local 
better restaurants are far from the little centro, the center. And in this case, the center is, you know, teeny, the village is teeny. But we just kept walking and walking and walking. And we came across this restaurant called Ristorante Bel Soggiorno, which the name alone, I was like, oh, we have to go here. This is perfect. Because that name means Bel, beautiful, good, Soggiorno, which is like a sojourn. So it's a good stay. It's a, it's a good visit. So we found this restaurant and oh my God, what did you have? It was delicious. I had some very thinly sliced beef, like, you know, eighth inch, but it was cooked rare. Like shaved. No, not, not, no, not shaved. No, a little thicker than that with some greens on top of it and shaved black truffles. Oh, right. And, and I had never, I can't, I've only had shaved black truffles twice in my life. That was one of them. That was one of them. I've had a lot of imitation truffles, truffle oil and stuff like that. But generally the truffles, you know, it's very hard to get good truffles here. Not to mention they're really, really, really expensive. Um, But the other time I had them wasn't- The first time you had truffles. The first time I had them. It wasn't in Italy, it was in Germany, but there was a strong Italian connection to it. So I'll, I'll go into that. So I was in Dusseldorf for the boat show, staying at my friend Adam's. Adam, if you're listening to this. Ciao, Adam. Ciao, Adam. He speaks Italian. He speaks speaks a lot of languages. (laughs) And uh, I'd done a lot of sailing with Adam. And I stayed with him and his wife in Dusseldorf at their home. And they own a uh, a restaurant bar. So every night after the boat show, we'd go to the restaurant bar. And one night, a whole crowd came back. Mostly Italian. No, no, about, about half Italians, okay. half Italians and Brits and and some Irishmen and some uh, Australians because it's a very international show. So Adam's wife, I forget her name, excuse me, Adam, but um, she closed the door and locked it. And all of a sudden- Private, private dinner. We had, we had the whole restaurant to ourselves. Not that Is we Is their were, restaurant normally Italian cuisine? No, no, okay. no, no, no. Okay. But everyone was there, obviously liked them in- some of the guys had come up from Perini Navi. Perini Navi was a, or is. is a super yacht, like, you know, 50 million, $80 million boat builder in Via Reggio. Mm-hmm. And it, yes, um, Via Reggio, Italy. Italy. Yeah. And um, someone brought like a tennis ball sized <gasps> truffle. A guy from Perini Navi. Uh, yeah. Probably. Which, which was, you know, Probably five hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars. I have no idea, but there are about twenty of us. And Adam and this other guy, an old friend, Ben Menem, went into the kitchen and started cooking the pasta. And they cooked, cooked, cooked. Everyone was drinking, and it was pretty lively. Obviously, a lot of accents, a lot of languages, yeah. and a lot of wine, wine, and <laughs> and you're in Germany, so we okay, had a lot. Beer. We had a lot of beer. And anyway, all of a sudden, the pasta came out. And Adam walked around and started shaving black truffle on everyone's and I pasta. And I love that, like, presentation. It's performance it's, it's art. art. Exactly. Performance art with truffles. Yes. So we all had this wonderful pasta with this really light sauce and these shaved black truffles. On In them. Dusseldorf. In Dusseldorf. <laughs> Can I just say a little side yes. to that? Before your dinner, you called, you know, you're six hours ahead. So you called and I was in New York right? and you said, hey, 
I'm I'm at Adam's restaurant and oh my God, it's so much fun. Here's Adam. Adam gets on the phone. He's like, ciao, Kimberly, come stai? Sto facendo una pasta da morire con funghi, con truffle, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, he just put the phone down and no one else picked it up. And so I was listening to you guys for like a half an hour, all these different languages and cheers, skull, chin, chin. I remember that bill. <laughs> Oh, the phone bill. The yeah. phone bill. I, well, I finally bill. hung up. I should have hung up earlier to save you the bill. Because in those days, it was so expensive. It was like $2 a minute or something. <laughs> I mean, anyway. I, it was a lot. That was your first truffle experience. Yes. Your second was in San Gimignano mm-hmm. at the awesome little family-run Ristorante di Bel Soggiorno. And that, that restaurant has been in the family for five generations. That's the kind of place you like to find. Mm-hmm. And there, and I remember when we walked in, I was like, ciao, questo è la prima volta per il mio marito qui in San Gimignano. It's the first time for my husband here in uh, San Gimignano. They're like, oh, here's a table by the window. There is, there is a real benefit to Kimberly walking in the door and speaking Italian right, to an owner. There's a benefit if, if you don't even speak Italian and you just try. Okay, well, that's fine, but it's right. a real benefit to you. Right. In. But for anybody listening, if you know a few words, you We've just- We've never gotten a bad table, dear. No, that's true. <laughs> but anyway, so I said, oh, it's the first time here. And so they gave us a table at the window and it was like looking through a picture frame at the landscape. It was the travel brochure for Tuscany as you're it looking up. It was so beautiful. And we just stared at it nonstop until the food came and I just had pasta and insalata, but you uh, were moaning over this beef with truffle. Yes. And we had a bit of Chianti. Uh, We had quite a bit because of that view. Exactly. But we also knew we had to drive back home. So Right. I mean, we went and walked around. So we did indeed walk around a bit. You do a couple of loops. We went into the fields a bit underneath that restaurant to look at the, the vineyards and the view. But then I knew we didn't order dessert there because A, it was lunch. Who does dessert at lunch? I could have. I could have doubled. <laughs> I could have gone double dessert. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I was going to say who does lunch, who does dessert at lunch unless you're on vacation. Right. But we didn't because I had to take Tommaso to Gelateria Dondoli. It is world famous and the maestro di gelato, his name is Sergio. And Sergio has run Gelateria Dondoli for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. I don't know. It is amazing. He has literally won the prize of the best gelato maestro is what you call it. Hmm. Gelato master. Um, the world over. And there he is in little San Gimignano. So we had some there. I had my typical frutti di bosco, which is the fruits of the forest. And Tom probably had five flavors. I don't remember. (laughs) So then we walked more and more. So we walked off the Chianti and then we walked off the gelato. Just a quick break here before we continue on with the rest of this episode. We want to remind you what we mentioned in our previous episode, that we had a few inquiries as to whether we'd be in Florence the beginning of December, because we had mentioned that it's the best time, most lovely time of year, 
pre-holiday, everything decorated, festive, etc. We realize some people are nervous about traveling to Italy right now, but I was just talking to my friends from New York City who own that house in Vezzanello. They said it's lovely and perfect with hardly any tourists. They just show their U.S. vaccination card when asked and all is perfecto. So get in touch through my website if you're interested in joining us the second week or two of December. Please keep in mind that since Italy has surpassed the U.S. in vaccinations, I think next year everyone will flock to Europe and especially Italy. So the time to go would be next spring or fall and the time to plan would be now. All the hotels and castles will book fast. I have such a wealth of amazing places to stay. And in order to assure that you have an incredible vacation, get in touch with me sooner as opposed to later. Okay, back to our day trip from San Gimignano. So when we finally left San Gimignano, we got back in our car and drove back roads north because I had to take Tom to this place that I had been before. And that's how I wanted to end our day because this place like gave me goosebumps the first time I was there and I wanted Tom to experience it as well. So I had a friend in, in Milan, uh, lived in my building. His name is Matteo and his, he grew up with his family south of Firenze and he knew of this place. So I went there one year with his family to celebrate Easter or some holiday. And when we were driving back home to Milano, he said, oh, I want to take you to this incredible place. It's just got amazing history that helped save the Italian Renaissance. I was like, what? He goes, I'll show you. So we get there. And so anyway, this is the day, this is the place I wanted Tom to experience as well. So there's this teeny little town. It's only 20 kilometers south of Florence, funny enough, teeny little town called Montagna, which just means mountain, but this one's spelled a little differently. But anyway, so teeny little town hilltop town and a kilometer outside the village is a, a castle and this ancient medieval castle called Castello, Castello di Monte Gufoni. And it was built in 1100, but its claim to fame didn't really happen till World War II. So as Matteo showed me and as I then later showed Tom that in 1942, the Germans started to work their way well, north. As the, as the yes, as the Allies invaded southern exactly. southern Italy, worked their way north, and Tom so. is like, he's like an encyclopedia of every single event that happened in World War II. Okay, <laughs> I won't get him going because then this podcast will take <laughs> off. Okay, so no more details on World War II. Let me pretend. I know everything about World War II. So the Germans were working their way north, bombing every significant thing they thought they should. The Burmans, the Germans are being chased north. That's all I'm saying, by the Allies. They were, they oh, were, okay. They were retreating. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Again, TMI. So anyway, because <laughs> what matters is only about Castello di Monte Gufoni. Okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway... The Florentines in 1942, who ran the Uffizi, the gallery, the Academia, the museum, they got so nervous that because they housed the most significant works of art from the Renaissance. So they thought, we can't, we can't sacrifice this. So 
they went south or east, west, north, anywhere from the city to find big old buildings that didn't look that showy or fancy. They were kind of under the radar, but most importantly, not close to any other city. So they wanted to move their artwork out of the Uffizi and the Academia and hide it throughout the rest of however long the war was going to last. And they had no idea. So they did just that. They found this Castello di Montegufini, this, and it was a little overgrown, the grounds and everything. And from above, it probably didn't look that significant. They were, at the time, kind of separate buildings. And then later, it's all been changed into one. And it's an incredible, incredibly impressive castle now. But in the day, it, it was a teeny bit run down. So they thought, let's try this. So in the dead of night, however many nights it took, from Firenze to this castle, 20 kilometers south, they moved 271 major works of Renaissance art. They were primarily massive paintings, you know, like those Tuscan landscapes that would take up an entire wall of the Academia or the Uffizi. But 271 of them, and they were works by... Botticelli, Giotto, Ghirlandaio's, the most famous um, Renaissance painting of his, Adoration of the Magi, some triptychs, some Cimabui, so significantly important Renaissance master's work. And the owner of the castle at the time was a British sir. His name is Sir George Sitwell. His name was Sir George Sitwell. And he had a caretaker named Guido Masti. And Guido Masti single-handedly and Sir Sitwell basically saved the heritage and the history of the Italian Renaissance, which is incredible, right? So you remember all this because we were lucky enough to be able to walk inside. Yes. But a little side story, I just want to say, the reason I love Guido Masti so much is because his name, Guido is a very popular name, more so older generations, not as much now. Right. But the name Guido, if you did a literal translation, comes from the verb guidare, which means to drive. And if you do the conjunction for the personal, the I personal, that Guido means I drive. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, Guido Masti from 1942, he saved the history of the Renaissance and his name is Guido. (laughs) I love that. Anyway, so what happened was Sarah Sitwell said, yes, of course you can use this, uh, our place. And they brought the 271 works of art and Guido himself was responsible for where to put them. And you know, in museums now it's climate controlled, no sunlight, et cetera. But in those days, in the forties, 1942, they probably had one painting per wall and it was, you know, hung securely, they knew the value of this ren- these Renaissance pieces. Sure. But in this situation, they couldn't worry like that. So they just lined up like the biggest piece would go against the wall and then the next smaller one, the next smaller one. So they were just lined up in these kind of like gallery salons of the main building and then covered with, can- you know, like tarps, if they had them, canvas tarps or whatever. Anyway, Guido 
went through all this and then let the grounds grow over and no lights on, no candles, no, well, lights in 1942, but right. kept all the lights off like all of Europe did, basically. And then everything was good until one day, 1942, later in the year, some German paratroopers screwed up and just ended, dropped there. And they, the first building, in the middle of nowhere, so the first building they found was this castle. So they got themselves inside and they saw all the artwork and they knew they hit the lottery in terms of what Hitler's demands were. Leave everything in your wake in ruins. So these German paratroopers demanded that Guido and Sir Sitwell burn everything in the courtyard. And, you know, what are they going to do? They're outnumbered. It was just... Guido and Sir Sitwell. And so some paratroopers with a lot of guns. Right. So in the end, now this may be a long tale, but I believe it. I totally (laughs) believe this is what happened. That Guido and Sir Sitwell said, okay, we'll do that. But first we should have a proper dinner. So they made pasta and got the German paratroopers completely drunk on Chianti. (laughs) <laughs> That's the story, and I'm sticking with it. Well, well what ha- in the end, what happened? Well, they got so drunk, they were really hungover, and then somehow, I mean, through radio contact or something, they were, however, they communicated with each other in those radio. days. Underground radio, no. SOS. No. They were told to leave and get up to Florence, because that was the next destination. Right. And they were hungover. So nothing was burned, and Guido saved the day. You know? Wine has its way. <laughs> right? Isn't it the best story? That's the goosebump story. So I brought Tom there. And during the time that Tom and I were there, they let us walk through the buildings. We could see the main salon where all these frescoes were painted on the ceiling that Sir Sitwell had um, commissioned. And we saw in the building, photographs that they had. It was kind of like a little museum library on what happened there. We saw black and white photographs of what happened because after the Germans left and then after they were liberated in the end of 1942, this area of San Gimignano and the castle itself, the general, a British general of the Allied forces, Mm -hmm. General Alexander. Oh, General Alexander, yes, yes. He heard about what Guido Masti and Sir Sitwell did to preserve the Renaissance artwork from Florence galleries. So he came down and they had all these photos taken of them and some black and white footage video. So when we were there, we got to see these framed photos on the wall of all the allied forces and the general and Guido Masti and his family and his daughters. They were all dressed up. It was so cute. And like two years later, three years later, Sir Sitwell passed away, but he lived through all that. And think of the pride Mm -hmm. he had in what his home was able to offer and his caretaker. Guido Masti's just top of the book in my game. (laughs) I love Guido. A little bit of history on the castle besides what happened in World War II, just so you know, because I think it's definitely worth the road trip to go. If you're in Firenze or anywhere in Tuscany, it's worth checking this place out. It was built in 1100, of course. 
It was owned by many, many noble families over the centuries and different owners built different towers. One owner, a noble family, built a tower that looks exactly like Palazzo Vecchio. And that is the main tower of this castle now. And I always found that funny in that all the artwork that was hidden there came from right next door to Palazzo Vecchio. And it was hidden, hidden in a right building there. with a with a mock-up, not a mock-up, but a uh, a, a a tower inspired, inspired by Palazzo Vecchio. So anyway. It was meant to be. It was totally meant to be. And so Sir Sitwell, as I said, passed away in 1946, and he had three children, and they lived there until they died. But his youngest son, they had kind of run out of the family money because Sir Sitwell bought a lot of artwork, and he filled the place post-World War II, or pre-World War II, I should say, he filled it with his own artwork. So finally, his youngest son couldn't keep up the place anymore. So he sold it in the early 70s, 1970s, to the Pozzarelli family. And that Pozzarelli family owns so many buildings all over Italy, but with good intention, and they rent them out as villas. So this Castello di Montegufoni can now, you can stay in it, but it's called like a, funny enough, it's called like a, self, a self-stay a self castle. So there's no lobby, there's caretakers and property managers and whatnot, but you just rent an apartment. It right. can be an apartment for two people. I think the largest one is for nine or 10 people. And that's in the main salon where those, the salons with the um, arch ceilings and all the frescoes, are painted. So you can stay in this castle from 1199 that has such incredible history and it's reasonably priced because there's no, you know, bar and there's a pool and the grounds are beautiful, but it's definitely worth staying there to think of. I mean, I would like to stay there and wake up and think, I just slept in a castle that has so much history from the medieval ages all the way to World War II. All the way to World War II. And not, un, you know, not unlike a lot of people, the gentleman who, the German general who saved Paris. I mean, a lot of good was done there. People realized that we can't let all this history and this beauty exactly. be destroyed. So, grazie Guido Masti. Yes, grazie <laughs> Guido Masti. Sir George Sitwell. Yes, Sir Sitwell. Thank you very much. <laughs> Anyway, so that is only 20 kilometers south of Firenze, Florence. So it's a good day trip or just do it wherever you're coming and going from. And so we start thinking about all the different day trips we have done, me on my own with my friends in Italy and then with Tom. And we're going to carry on a bit in our next episode. Yes. And that will be to Luca. Another medieval small city, well, much a, larger. A than, walled city. I haven't gotten there yet. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Jump the gun. It's a much larger city than San Gimignano, of course, because San Gimignano is like a hiccup. And Luca is a small city that is completely walled. And the historic part in the center is car-free also. And we are going to have our friend, Conrado, as they called him in, in Italy, but he's he's an American named Conrad. And he's going to come over and give us his two cents because he lived there many times on and off. 
because he worked at the Parini Navi, the shipyard, yep. building all these incredibly beautiful Italian boats. Oh, and, I, I thought you were going to fly Luca de Luca in. Oh, yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> Hold on. So I was up in Lago di Como and Conrad came up to visit me and meet all my friends he'd heard about forever. And then I went down to see where he lived in Luca because funny enough, all my years living in Italy, I never went to Luca. And everyone's like, oh, Luca's amazing. I just never got there. So I went for the first time with Conrad when he was living there. So it was perfect. And he's one of these guys that walks in and he owns the room and he's he befriends every barista, every waiter, every cheesemonger, you name it. He was friends with everyone. And most importantly, he introduced me to his friend named Luca. <laughs> so I am still friends with Luca da Luca on Instagram and we email occasionally and stuff. So anyway, Luca is an amazingly beautiful place and Conrad will help explain it. Our first guest. Our first guest. Yeah, that'll be fun. That's exciting. We're actually going to make a big pasta dinner and have some wine. Imagine that. <laughs> He's oh, all for it. I wish we could he... have black truffles. Oh, maybe. Will you fly over and get some? No. Uh, not even it's not season. season yet. It almost is. But anyway, so that's that. Thank you so much once again for listening. And we want to say that, again, we're really appreciative of all these incredible responses we've gotten from people we don't know, good friends of ours from all over the world. It's, it's encouraging and we are grateful. And people tell you they've listened and then they tell you what they listened to in great detail. You know, they listened as opposed to, Hey, I got your podcast, man. (laughs) As a matter of fact, last night we spoke to a friend, a friend here that lives in Rhode Island. And she said, I smelled the Jasmine that you were describing on that (laughs) hike in Lake Como. I was like, wow. And she goes, and then when Tom fell asleep under the archway at Harry's bar in Chernobyl, like, interesting. (laughs) This is someone that really got sucked in and she loves it. So thank you very much for all your comments. And a review on whatever platform you listen to your podcast would be super helpful because we are trying to grow our audience. And again, my, my Instagram account is in need of some love and amore and sharing. So thank you so much, everyone, for everything. And two weeks from now, episode 13 on Luca. Grazie tanto. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. (laughs) Bravo. Now I'm going to finish my Aperol spritz in like one huge gulp. (laughs) 